I desire to call your attention this morning to the great prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Ephesians, recorded, you remember, in the third chapter. And again I shall read from verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. We are still considering this great prayer, and we have arrived at the point at which we are considering this petition offered thus by the Apostle for these Ephesians, that uh, having been rooted and grounded in love, they may be able, they may be fully able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. Now here, as we saw last Sunday morning, we are dealing not with our love to God and to Christ and to the brethren, but with his love to us. The apostle is concerned that these Ephesians might know that love. Now we have looked at it very generally. We have seen that this is the highest knowledge that can ever come to us in this world. There is no knowledge beyond this. That's not to uh, take from uh, the value of other forms of knowledge. All forms of knowledge are very valuable, but there is no knowledge which is in any way comparable to this. A knowledge of doctrine intellectually is a most marvelous thing, but even that falls short of this. The business of all knowledge, even of doctrine, is to bring us to this knowledge of the love of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have also seen that it is a knowledge that is open to all, all saints, to nobody but saints, but to all the saints. And then we saw the need of being strengthened. We must be fully able. That preparation is necessary. And the apostle has already been offering petitions in order to cover that. That's the reason for being strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner men. That is why it is essential that Christ should dwell in our hearts. That is why it is absolutely vital that we should be rooted and grounded in love. Very well. Now we proceed to consider this great and marvelous matter still further. I indicated at the close last Sunday morning that uh, we might well go on this morning to consider the nature or the character of that knowledge. 
But it seems to me on reflection that it would be well before we come to that to consider the knowledge itself. In other words, uh, to consider together what uh, can be known of the love of God. Now that is the thing that the Apostle sets before us and before these Ephesians in this extraordinary way which he has here of putting it to us, that he may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Now, the very terminology which is used by the Apostle in and of itself suggests vastness. And there is no doubt that he chose to describe it in this three-dimensional manner in order to give that very impression. There is no way in which you can give uh, such an impression of vastness as to put it in this very form in which he's put it. It's very interesting to speculate as to why he decided to do this. I am very ready to agree with those who say that probably what he had been saying himself at the end of the second chapter, before he began on the digression which occupies the first 13 verses of this chapter, where he had been talking, you remember, about the church as a holy temple in the Lord. The church has a great building in which God takes up his abode and in which he dwells. I'm ready to believe that that was still in his mind. And as he thought of the vastness of the church, this enormous temple in which God dwells and is going to dwell, he felt that that was not a bad way of describing the love of Christ to his people. It's similar to that, and it's as vast as that, and it is as great as that. I don't want to make too much of this, because I verily believe that the apostle, in using the terms, was simply anxious, as I say, for us to get hold of this vastness of the love, its greatness. Indeed, he almost contradicts himself here. And he uses uh, that figure of speech which is called oxymoron. You know, he says that we are to know uh, that love of Christ which passeth knowledge. How can you know something which can't be known? How can you define something which is so great that it cannot be defined? What is the use of talking about measurements if it's immeasurable? And if it's eternal and everlasting? But of course there is... There is no contradiction here. What the apostle is saying is this, that though this love of Christ is itself beyond all computation and can never be truly measured, nevertheless, it is our business to learn as much as we can about it, to receive as much as we can possibly contain, to do our utmost, as it were, to try to comprehend it all. So there is no contradiction, I say, and therefore it behoves us to look at this description which he here gives us of the love of Christ. 
Now I invite you therefore to join with me in doing so this morning. Here we are going to look at this most glorious and most wonderful thing. It will be the theme of contemplation of all the saints, not only in this world, but also in the world which is to come. We shall spend our eternity in gazing upon it and wondering at it and in being astounded by it. Now, it is our business to start upon this in this life and in this world. You will find that it's ever been one of the greatest uh, characteristics of all the greatest saints, that they have spent a good deal of their time in meditating upon this love of Christ to themselves and to all his people. Nothing has given them greater joy. Indeed, this is a characteristic of love, isn't it, at all levels. It delights in not only uh, thinking of its love to the object of love, but also of the love of the other. Nothing, therefore, should give greater joy to all God's people than to meditate upon this love, to look at it. Indeed, the Apostle's whole object here is to encourage these Ephesians to do this very thing. You see, the final trouble with all of us as Christians is that we fail to realize his love to us. Now, think of that for a second. How often have you thought about that? We tend to be thinking about our own activities, don't we, and about our own lives. We give a good deal of thought and attention to that, perhaps. But the real thing that is necessary to make the Christian life complete is to know his love to us and to meditate upon that. I'm hoping to show you that this is really the spring and the source of the greatest activity that has ever been manifested in the long history of the Christian church. Very well then, let us try and look at it in terms of these very dimensions which the Apostle here puts before us and suggests for our consideration. The love of Christ to us, to his people. Have you ever considered the breadth of this love? Have you ever considered its extent in that particular dimension? Well, there are many places in Scripture where this is put before us in a very striking and in a very wonderful manner. We have no conception of the extent of Christ's love when looked at in that particular form. Listen to it in the book of Revelations, for instance, as it is put like this in the fifth chapter in the ninth verse. And hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And again in the eleventh verse, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. The book of Revelation seems to specialize in this, in the breadth of Christ's love. Here we are looking at these glorified saints. Here we are looking at the Son of God with his redeemed. And these are the figures. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, 
of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb. Now that is something which we are going to see perfectly one day in glory. But at a time like this, especially in the history of the church, what can be more encouraging and more exhilarating than to think of this breadth of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ? As Christians, we are but a handful of people in this country today, but a very small percentage. And that sometimes tends to depress us and to discourage us. And indeed, as you read the history of the church, you may sometimes be discouraged as you see how low the church has gone at times. Well, the antidote to all that is always to consider the breadth of Christ's love. It was the trouble with the Jews, you see, that they never understood this particular dimension. They thought that salvation was only to the Jew. But they were given to see those of them whose eyes were opened like the Apostle Paul, who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and who believed that, that that was altogether wrong, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, barbarian nor Scythian, bond nor free, nor male nor female. It's a very marvelous thing, I say this morning, to recollect this, that even as things are today, in the world, in every country, in every continent, Differing in color, in culture, in background, and in everything else conceivable, there are men and women meeting together as you and I are this morning to worship God and to thank him for his dear son and his glorious salvation. The breadth of it all. And I say that finally, we shall be amazed at it as we realize what the love of God in Christ has accomplished in spite of sin and in spite of hell and the devil. Ten thousand times ten thousand in sparkling raiment bright. You'll see them ascending, pressing up the steeps of light. That's the glorious prospect, I say, which we must dwell upon and meditate upon. We've no conception of the greatness of this plan of salvation and of its scope. You remember that certain people came to our Lord one afternoon and asked the question, Are there few that be saved? How many shall be saved? Well, I don't know the precise answer to that question, but I do know this from the scriptures, that we shall be astonished, all of us, when we see all the redeemed gathered in the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of Israel. And so all Israel shall be saved, and the redeemed shall be in the presence of their Redeemer. The breadth of his love. Well, work it out for yourselves. It's not surprising that the apostle is praying so intently and earnestly that these Ephesians might know this. It changes your whole outlook. When you tend to feel depressed, as I say, and to ask the question, is there anything in it any longer? We are but a handful and a remnant. Shall I go on with it? My dear friend, look, I say, at this dimension. Look ahead. Look into the glory. See the final finished work. And once you begin to realize 
the breadth of his love, you'll lift up your head again. Your heart will begin to sing once more. And you'll realize that you are having the glorious privilege of being just one humble member in this mighty army, in this thronging multitude who shall spend their eternity in the presence of the Lamb and enjoy him without end. The breadth of his love. But come, let me say just something about the length of his love. The breadth, says the apostle, and the length. I'm quite sure that he went into these particular measurements in order that he might encourage the Ephesians and encourage us through them to work it out in this way. It's no use saying, oh yes, I'm going to meditate upon the love of God in some abstract manner. That's not enough. You'll never get it in that way. You've got to work it out in details as it's been revealed. Now then, look at this length. What does this convey? Well, I think this conveys the endless character of the love of Christ. Sometimes we are told about the everlasting love of God. I will love thee with an everlasting love. And I suppose there is nothing which in certain respects is more wonderful than this particular dimension. Have you ever considered the eternity of Christ's love toward you and towards all the saints? What's it mean? Well, it means this. It is a love that began in eternity. It was always there. Now, our fathers were much wiser than we are. And they were wiser in this respect. That they were more theologically minded than we are. We foolishly think that the most important thing is the practical. Well, of course, the practical is very important. But if you really want to be practical, you better start with a little bit of theory. A man who jumps into practice without studying theory is finally a fool. Imagine a man who began to play with atomic power, knowing nothing about it. Theory must come if you want your practice to be really good. Now, I say our fathers were much wiser than we were. They saw the importance of theology and of doctrine. And they were very fond of talking about what they called the covenant of redemption, which led in turn to the covenant of grace. What do they mean? Well, they meant something like this. Before time, before the world and men were ever created, a great agreement was entered into between the Father and the Son. And it was an agreement about the salvation of those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant of redemption. The fall of men was seen. Everything was known. And the Son, as the representative of this new humanity, entered into a covenant with his Father that he would save them and redeem them. And pledging himself to, take, to taking certain action, 
the Father covenanted with him to grant certain privileges and blessings unto these people who now were given to the Son, the covenant of redemption. Now how important it is to meditate upon that, because you see it brings you at once to this realization that the love of Christ to his own started away back before time there in eternity. It was in his eternal heart. It isn't something which has suddenly come into being. It was there. And that is why you see the scriptures tell us that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Now, I, I'm free to confess that this is to me one of the most staggering things of all, that I was known to Christ in eternity. I in particular, and every one of us who belonged to him in particular, were known to him. Our names were written in his book. What a dignity it adds to human life and to our existence in this world that he has set his heart upon us. His affections rested upon us even away back in eternity. That's the beginning, if, you, if there is such a thing possible, as the beginning of this length of his love toward us. Before time. But then come and let us look at this uh, dimension of length. As it works out in this life and in this world, and here again is something that is very precious. The love of Christ towards his own is from eternity to eternity. It began there, I said, it continues in time. We therefore can always be sure that it will never change, that it will never vary, that it is always the same. Jesus Christ, we are told, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, his love is always the same. There are no interruptions in it. This length is an unbroken line. It doesn't matter what happens, that goes on. It's not a variable, it's a constant. It doesn't suddenly come down to nothing, and then continue, and then rise again. And then go down. No, no. It's a line. It's a straight line. It's a length. It's never variable. It's a love that never gives us up. It's a love that never despairs about us. Now, one of the most perfect expressions of that, of course, is our Lord's own parable of the prodigal son. It's like that, he says. Doesn't matter that this boy has been a fool and has gone to the far country. Doesn't matter that he spurned the love that was shown him and the home and all and put before it all the gaudiness and the tawdriness of that far country. His love was variable. It went all together. But not the father's. Now that is the picture of the love of Christ towards his own. Patient, long-suffering, bearing with us, never giving us up. 
It is, I say, one of the most wonderful things to realize that even when we in our folly sin against him or turn our backs upon him and even sin against him, his love still remains. It still goes on. Our hymn has expressed it for us perfectly. O oh, love that wilt not let me go. It's a love that goes on and on and on and follows us wherever we may go. It will not let us go. The length. He has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Now don't you see the importance of meditating upon all this and contemplating it? You see, it's because we don't do that that we tend to think at times that he's forgotten us or that he's left us when troubles and problems and trials come and we have our difficulties and disappointments. We say, where is the... It's there the whole time, my friend. The trouble is that you can't see it. You haven't meditated upon it. You haven't realized its eternal character. You haven't grasped this dimension of length. Listen to it again as it's put in these words. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There it is. It goes on and on. Other things try to pull it down. They cannot. It goes on. Doesn't matter what comes. What tries to interrupt it. It cannot. Nothing. Nothing. Shall be able to separate us. From the love of God. Which is in Christ Jesus. Our Lord. What a comfort. What a consolation. What a strength, what a stay in times of trial and in times of adversity. There I say it is in time. If he has set his heart and his affections upon you, my dear friend, it will never cease to be. Never. Nothing will ever be able to pluck you out of his hand. Nothing will ever rob you of that love. Nothing. Let hell be let loose. Let everything go against you. Nothing will ever make him let you go. But this goes on even into eternity. We've started in eternity, we've come down into time, and it goes back again into eternity. This line, I say, is unbroken. Here I can again put it to you in a great word in the scripture. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews in the 7th chapter and the 25th verse puts it like this. Wherefore, he says, because he's got an eternal priesthood, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He's going to save us to the uttermost. Nothing will be left undone. Doesn't matter, I say, what happens. He will not let us go until the very last iota and tittle of the plan has been fully completed. He's there making intercession for us now. 
and he's always there. He's not like those earthly priests who went in and out of the holiest of all. And they lived and they died and others had to come. He ever liveth. He's always there. It's unbroken and it'll go on to all eternity. That's the length of his love. But now let's look for a moment at the depth of his love. And again, of course, I'm tempted to say that this is the most wonderful thing of all. That's true of every single one of them. Look at this for a moment and consider it. Here, perhaps, we can do nothing better than again consider what the great apostle wrote in those words to the Philippians in the second chapter. The depth of Christ's love can be seen in two main respects. First of all, in what he did. Here's the way to measure the depth. I needn't keep you. I just plead with you to dwell and meditate upon that wonderful chapter, that second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Here it is. He was in the form of God. He was God, the Son in the bosom of the Father, from all eternity without beginning. But this is what we are told. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, which means he did not regard his equality with God as a prize to be held on to, to be held on to at all costs. No, no. He let that go. And he humbled himself. He divested himself of these signs of his eternal glory. And he came in the likeness of men. In the form of a man. This, of course, is beyond understanding, as the apostle says, the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. And it is, but there is what we are told, and these are the facts, that he deliberately didn't hold on to what he had a right to hold on to, but rather humbled himself and entered into the virgin's womb, and took unto himself human nature and came and lived as a man in this world. Remember all we are told about the poverty of the home into which he was born, into its lowliness. Remember what happened to him while he was in this world, how he performed a menial task. He who was equal with God the Son of God eternally. And then begin to consider what he suffered at the hands of men. The misunderstanding and the hatred and the malice and the spite. Think of him suffering weariness and hunger and thirst. Think of men laying cruel hands upon him and arresting him and trying him mocking him and jeering at him, spitting in his most holy face. Think of them condemning him to death and scourging him. Look at him staggering under the weight of that heavy cross as he goes up Golgotha. Look at him nailed upon the tree. Listen to his expressions of agony. 
Listen to him telling them of the thirst that he endured, the pain that he suffered. Think of that terrible moment when the sins of men being laid upon him, he even lost sight of the face of God for the one and only time in eternity and gave up the ghost and died and was buried and laid in a grave, the author of life, the creator of everything, lying dead in a grave. And why did he do it all? And the astounding answer is because of his love for you. Because he loved you. That's the depth of his love. He descended into hell. All, I say, simply as an expression of the depth of this love. There was no other reason for doing it. It was the sole reason. It was his own eternal love that he had set upon his people. And he came and endured all that. That's some conception of the depth. But look at it from our standpoint. Look at it in this way. There was nothing in us to recommend us. He didn't do it because of anything that he saw in us. All we like sheep had gone astray. We all had come short of the glory of God. We all were desperately hateful and hopeless creatures. Some of us have been looking into this description of men in sin on Friday nights. For the sake of those of you who don't come, let me read to you what the Apostle Paul tells us about the condition of mankind until the grace of God in Christ lays hold upon us. This is it. He tells us in the third chapter that this is the state and condition. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth should be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. That is a description of every single one of us by nature. And yet I say the marvelous thing is this, that it was for such people that he came and endured what he did. Now the Apostle has again set it out perfectly in that fifth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, which we read at the beginning. You remember the Lord said, Greater loveth no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But that isn't the love of Christ to us. The love of Christ to us is this, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled unto God by the death of his Son. That's it. He did all this 
for sinners, for his enemies, for those who are vile and foul and who have nothing at all in them to recommend them. That's the measure of the depth of his love. He came from heaven, he went down to the depths for such people. It is only as we meditate upon that and realize its truth that we really begin to know something about his love. Well then, that brings me to the last, which is the height. And this again is a most glorious thing. What does this mean? Well, this clearly means this. This is the way in which the apostle expresses his purpose for us, his ultimate and his final purpose for us. If you like, we can put it like this. This is the way in which he describes the height to which he proposes to raise us. Now the tragedy is that so many of us think of salvation only in terms of forgiveness. As if all the love of Christ does for us is to purchase for us the forgiveness of our sins. If you feel that that is the whole of salvation, there's only one explanation. That is, you've never known the height of the love of Christ. What is the height? Well, here it is. He died not only that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. He did all he did. Not only that my sins might be blotted out, but more that I might be given a new birth. Not merely that God will no longer punish me, that I, but that I might be made a child of God, a son of God, an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. Now this is a part of the height of Christ's love for us. He set his love upon me, and that's his purpose for me. Because he loves me, he wants to do certain things to me, and he wants to do certain things with me. He wants to do certain things for me. And this is a part of his purpose. He's got his eye upon me and he wants to bring me into this sonship and into this heirship. And so having given me this new birth, this new principle of life, he gives me this possession of the same Holy Spirit that was in him himself. The Father giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him, we are told. He gives it by measure unto us. So I have the same Spirit as was in him. That's a part of his love to me. But then, as the Apostle has already been reminding these Ephesians, his love to us is so great that he's actually joined us to himself. We are united with Christ. He's made us parts of himself, of his own body. That is why we were quickened with him and raised with him and are seated in the heavenly places with him. That is why he says in the first chapter that we are members of his body. And in the fifth chapter he goes on to say we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. It's his love that has done that for us. But then we go on and read in the epistle to the Philippians that he is not only saving us thus in a spiritual sense, he is even going to save our bodies. 
He wants me to be redeemed entirely. So we look from heaven for the coming of that Savior who shall change this our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to that mighty working whereby he is able to subdue even all things unto himself. Have you ever thought of that? That Christ is not going to be satisfied until your very body is as glorified as his own glorious body is at this very moment. And then we go on and look at something like this. In his last prayer on earth to his father, he prayed these words. Father, he said, I will that these also whom thou hast given me shall be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Do you realize what he means by that? He loves us to this extent that he prays to his father. Father, he says, I want them to be there with us. I want them to see me in all my glory. That's what he means. That's the expression of his love for you. That's the height of his love. Not simply that you're forgiven. That you no longer do certain things. He wants you to be there with him in the glory. And to spend your eternity there. Indeed John in his first epistle actually says that. We know not he says what we shall be like. But we know this. That we shall be like him. And we shall see him as he is. Now, when you and I love anybody, we are anxious for those people to have privileges and blessings. We want them to have enjoyment. That is the great characteristic of love always, and that is the love of Christ to us in its height. You see, he's not going to be satisfied until, as the apostle puts it in this fifth chapter of this uh, great epistle, he's not going to be satisfied until... We shall be a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle, nor any such thing, but that it shall be holy and without blemish. That's his ambition for the church. That is his ambition for all whom he loves. You and I shall be glorified in spirit and in body. There will be no fault, no blemish, no wrinkle, nothing at all. We shall be perfect and entire and absolutely filled with the glory of Christ and of God. And the final word is this. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Well, my friends, there we have just glimpsed at it. In a feeble and in an unworthy manner. But that is a glimpse of the love of Christ to you. Did you come into this service feeling rather sorry for yourself? Did you come in a lethargic manner? Did you come perhaps doubting and hesitating whether you'd come at all? Have you allowed the world or the flesh or the devil to get you down and to depress you? There's only one antidote to that sort of thing. It is to meditate and to contemplate this love of Christ. Had you realized its breadth, its length, 
its depth, its height? Had you realized who you are? Had you realized that Jesus is the lover of your soul? That he set his affections upon you? And that that is his ambition for you? Child of God, shouldst thou repine? Should we shuffle through this world, children of the heavenly king, as he journey, sweetly sing, sing your Savior's worthy praise, glorious in his works and ways. Don't you agree with me now, my dear friends, that the real trouble today in the church is that we don't know Christ's love to us? We spend our time with petty little things immersed in our organizations. If the church were full of this love and knowledge of this love, why should be absolutely transformed? This is the thing, I say, that makes us mighty. That is why the apostle prayed without ceasing that these Ephesians might with all saints everywhere else begin to comprehend What is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Oh, that we might know it and revel in it and rejoice in it. Amen.